Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. There. Welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is Peng Fei Zhao, your host for today's program, speaking to you from Bloomington, Indiana. Before I introduce today's guest, let me ask you a question first. How many of you love stories? I do. From the beautifully illustrated children's book, to the sophisticated contemporary novels. They are very important thought food for me. Good stories stay for a long time in my mind. In my free time, I like to ponder over them, share them, sometimes even write about them. But using stories to do social research or present research findings in the form of stories these ideas probably are still too new for many of us. Today, I will be talking with an expert of stories. Meanwhile, she's also a well-established researcher who uses stories to produce solid social research. Dr. Junhee Kim from Texas Tech University. We will be talking about her new book, Understanding Narrative Inquiry, The Crafting and Analysis of Stories as Research, published by Sage Press in 2016. Now, I will refrain from a lengthy introduction of the book, but let Junhee lead us to her world of stories. Hello, Junhee. Welcome to New Books in Education. Yeah, hi. Hi, uh, I'm very excited to talk about uh, to talk with you about your wonderful book, Understanding Narrative Inquiry. But before we dive into the book, tell us some stories. Stories about what led you to narrative inquiry and to this book. Do you want a long story or a short story? Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Me- medium-sized story. <laughs> yes, medium-sized story is fine. Well, you know, I I think I have to say that it was out of fluke that I got into narrative inquiry, because if I did not meet my dissertation advisor Tom Brown, I would not have gotten into narrative inquiry. Uh, I was a doctor student. Um, Actually, Dr. Brown was not my original advisor, but after, actually at the beginning of my doctor's study, uh, study, I asked, I went to see him in his office and asked him to be my dissertation advisor, but he rejected me. It's because he had too many students at the time. And so I- Oh, was he's like, very popular. Yeah, yeah. Actually, he did not, admit more than five students 
So he had five, uh-huh. and I had to wait until one of his students graduated. So, uh, so um, I had to wait for two years, and finally, actually, it happened after I took his narrative inquiry class, and I just fell in love with it, and I just thought that okay, I'm gonna use this methodology no matter what, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought he was not my advisor, but I thought that I really need to have him on my uh, committee so that I I could learn more from him because I just took a one class on narrative inquiry and there's more there was much more to learn about it. So it's the field is like vast. So I went to see him again and see if there's any spot. Uh, luckily, he said, yes, I do have one spot for you, so you can be my strength. So from then on, my life as a doctor's strength really like uh, began to, I guess, blossom because I just uh, uh, loved working with him and visited with him and asking questions about narrative, uh, more articles to read he was sharing with me and um, I think that's just that's that's uh, pretty much how I got into narrative inquiry. But um, but how I got into narrative inquiry and reading this, I mean, writing this book was that although I've been uh, I was uh, engaged in narrative inquiry, there's no one or two specifically, you know, discussing narrative inquiry as a way to um, guide students and faculty who are interested in narrative. I felt like narrative inquiry was all over, and I wanted to um, introduce some, like, like I had a lot of uh, students asking me questions. Okay, talk to Kim. What book should I read? I'm interested in narrative inquiry. What book should I read? What article should I read? Then I really did not have an answer for it. And uh, I felt like, okay, I mean, what is it? What is narrative inquiry? I mean, it's so hard to define. And uh, there are so many resources that I could pull from. There's one particular book or article that I could just, you know, uh, recommend. So I just, um, I, I felt a need uh, to write a book on narrative. And, and here I am. I, it took me three years, but, you know, uh, that's pretty much the story of how I got into writing this book. So at that at the time when you started to use narrative inquiry, what did the field look like? You just mentioned um, there was no one book, like mm-hmm. comprehensive book, that you can inter- uh, point it to uh, for your students uh, to give a introduction for the method or the methodology. What was the field look like? Uh, what did, what did the field look like at that time? You know, it was about uh, early two thousands when I got into this methodology, 
And um, um, I have to admit that it was hard to find a journal that would accept this kind of storytelling uh, methodology um, because there was a lot of uh, kind of uh, um, bias and prejudice against storytelling. Uh, a lot of academics believe that uh, storytelling is not academic enough, it's not theoretical enough. Therefore, we are not going to accept any kind of this uh, article or you know manuscript that use that that employs uh, narrative inquiry. And I, uh, at at the beginning of my academic career as an assistant professor, I received a lot of rejections, um, and I I certainly thought about you know I like I felt a kind of crisis. Uh, where I thought, oh my gosh, what did I do? Why did I choose narrative inquiry? Because it's not popular. It's not really well accepted by the uh, uh, by the academic community. Uh, I'm not gonna, you know, be able to succeed as a scholar, scholar and researcher if I continue to use narrative inquiry. And so I had some kind of panic moment. Um, in early 2000. But looking back, I feel like it was not the methodology that uh, rejected my uh, manuscript. My manuscript was not strong enough anyway. Whether it used narrative, it was not because I used narrative inquiry, but I did not like, uh, I did not make it strong enough uh, to, to be uh, worthy of uh, publication because because after rejections, I was able to go back to those rejected manuscripts and I figured out ways to strengthen the discussion section and conclusion uh, by drawing upon the literature and, and theories. Uh, so it did not matter whether I used a narrative inquiry. It was uh, the matter of uh, making my work, narrative inquiry work, uh, scholarly and and uh, and theoretical enough, uh, then people liked it, and I started getting acceptances. So, um, so to uh, make the long story short, uh, the field in two thousand, a narrative inquiry field, uh, uh, was not that as popular as now. Um, but now I feel like when I say narrative inquiry, people seem to understand what it is and they like it and they're excited about it. So I see the uh, like, uh, differences that I feel uh, from the field uh, before, like around the early 2000s and now, you know, um, um, close to 2020. So um yeah. Yeah. So from, yeah, from what you said just now, it sounds like uh, two decades ago, narrative inquiry was still struggling to gain enough recognition mm-hmm. in academia. I mean, yeah, uh, from academics, right? Right. Yeah. But, and, mm-hmm. 
but the method is、uh, just、uh, getting more and more popular、uh, in this most recent two decades,、mm-hmm. and、uh, and you you seem to you seem to like see more、uh, recognition from people across different disciplines. Hmm. Hmm.、Yeah. So who are using? Yeah. So who are using narrative inquiry now? Like, uh, p- like, what kind of scholars are using narrative inquiry?、Uh, I'm asking because it is such an interdisciplinary method, and I'm trying to get a sense of like who are、uh, from uh what scholars from what kind of disciplines are using it. You know, surprisingly, um, I because I'm in education. Um, I thought that only educational researchers are using narrative inquiry, but as I talk to more people、uh, in other disciplines, such as、uh, you know economy, or counseling, or you know sociology, all these、uh, fields in social sciences. They are very much interested in narrative inquiry, and they use it even in the arts. Ah,、uh, you know, arts community. They talk about visual storytelling, visual narratives. You know how they use a、uh, narrative to better understand、uh, or to better communicate、uh, their artwork. So narrative is actually everywhere,、um, and I see the connections all the time. Um, between narrative and、uh, and what what we do as a as as a researcher or as a normal、uh, you know person,、uh, narrative is how we think and how we live. So、um, I have to say that this、um, narrative inquiry is、uh, kind of embedded in in in. In everyday life, and you think people like studying our everyday life from different perspectives are all interested in narrative inquiry.、Mm-hmm. I mean, this it surprised me. You told me, you can people from economics like、yeah. economists are still are also using narrative inquiry, right? And law. Uh, people in law use use them use use narrative inquiry, and、uh, and medicine and nursing, the field of nursing, uh, um, uh, narrative inquiry is very popular in their field as well. Wow, the field so, any field that any field that that involves involves human beings that involves people. They use narrative. Wow, interesting. So that means you really have a vast audience. Like you have a very wide readership for your book.、Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> But I wish we know. <laughs> we know that the book won the 2017 Outstanding Publication Award from AERA's Narrative Research Special Interest Group. So it really said something about the quality of the book, I would say. And thank you. Thank you. 
You are so welcome. And I think the book really pushes the field to move forward significantly. With that said, I would like to、uh, direct our conversation to the book itself. Sure. And actually, I was planning to ask you about what's your definition of narrative inquiry, but then I read this paragraph in the preface of the book. Do you mind if I just read it out here? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sure. sure. So the so you write、um, a paragraph about. People ask me what narrative inquiry is, and ironic, ironically, I found this simple question difficult to answer because a there are so many narrative researchers in different disciplines who have adopted narrative theory and method in different ways. B the narrative field is changing and evolving, and C. Narrative inquiry attempts to embrace diversity in methods, avoiding association with only one of the many、um, currently in use. So, what is your approach to narrative inquiry in this book? If the task of defining narrative inquiry is so insurmountable, well, um. I have to keep、uh, reminding myself of what narrative inquiry is. That is totally and closely related to stories.、Um, so I have to, you know, if you ask me what is the definition of narrative inquiry, I have to say is a storytelling methodology, because I. I have observed that a lot of people they say they are doing narrative inquiry, but when I look at their work, there's no story in that、uh, inquiry process. So、um, I keep reminding myself and my students if they say they want to be engaged in narrative inquiry, I have to say that well, then、uh, you have to tell stories, and、uh, when you Approach narrative inquiry. You have to approach it. Approach it from the narrative perspective. You have to write narratively. You have to think narratively. But I see some kind of disconnection, disconnect between between、um, their uh, um, approach to narrative and their actual embodiment of narrative or lack thereof. So I my approach to narrative inquiry is uh, is um, you know how how can I tell a story that is really compelling that is really、uh, approachable that is so um, um, so、um, that brings out a lot of resonance among、uh, among readers. So that is my approach. But then, when we say storytelling again, as I said before,、um, they people、um, people some people in academia may think that narrative、uh, as a storytelling methodology is not academic or scholarly enough. So we really have to、uh, juggle the、uh, balance between、uh, scholarly work, narrative inquiry as a scholarly work. 
and narrative inquiry as an artistic work. We really need to merge uh, this uh, the the scholarly uh, approach and artistic approach when we uh, do narrative. So that's that's my approach. Well, would you like to say a little bit more about how to make the merge happen? It sounds very um, uh, it sounds a very good approach, but it may help the audience to understand better if we if you can give us say an example, for example. Um. So in my book, I think I uh, talk about the notion of aesthetic play, where you have to uh, be serious and playful at the same time. So when I say serious, you really need to be able to theorize what you are working on, your research topic, your research data that you have. Uh, And then at the same time, you really have to be playful with ideas of how to make sense of the data that you have and and uh, how you can design and create some meaningful representation of the data that you have so that readers or you know uh, audience who read your work uh, may find your work really like uh, relevant to to what they uh, what they do and have some resonance with 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 their uh, thinking. So I have to say that um, merging or marriage between scholarly work and artistic work or expression is critical in doing narrative inquiry because we cannot write a boring story based on our research data. It has to be engaging, it has to be interesting, it has to be appealing, it has to be compelling to the reader. That's, that's how we make our work, narrative work, different from other, uh, you know, traditional, more traditional quality research. So what kind of data uh, do you use, for example? Like, do you use... Um some conventionally um, version of data, like interviews, observations. What are some of the data now do do you and other narrative inquirers use? Um, The approach to data collection is not different from what traditional quality researchers may use. So, you know, interview is the main source of uh, data data collection for narrative inquiry because, uh, but the way to conduct an interview would be different uh, for narrative inquirers from the traditional way of doing an interview because I would say that, you know, interviews, there are many sorts of uh, different interviews, but when if you are doing a narrative inquiry, then you have to uh, do a kind of more narrative, narrative interviews, like life story interviews, life, life history interviews, where you could elicit uh, lengthy stories from your participants. Um, and... Um, 
um, uh, another data source would be you know collect uh, collecting um, you know visuals like uh, photos uh, or other artifacts um, documents. So we use all kinds of uh, traditional ways of collecting, uh, you know, uh, data for quality research. But then, how to elicit a story uh, from the data would be would require some some narrative thinking and uh, some techniques and and uh, and um, some judgment from the researcher. Well, interesting. Then there is this um, rep, this issue of representing the data, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. think that part is uh, more unique for narrative inquiry. Is, mm-hmm. is that uh, what you? Is that what you mean just now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know the data representation. So. Um, after collecting data, all quality researchers and quantity researchers alike, they have to figure out ways to represent their data so that it is readable, it is approachable, right? So it has to be placed in, on a paper. Um, so then how do we represent the data that we have? Again, that requires your uh, creativity and imagination. Um, also, we have to think about how to honor the bo- voices of our storytellers, our uh, participants. Um, how do we uh, honor their voices and without violating their integrity, how do we represent data in our, uh, in our work? That is uh, kind of, that requires some ethical decision and um, um, is uh, something that we really have to uh, think about uh, seriously and then playfully at the same time. Then going back to this balance you just uh, talked about, this balance between aesthetic play and uh, serious uh, academic research. Mm -hmm. So I have a question about, you know, after you have this story, um, uh, after you tell this story, then how do you theorize the story? Like I think that part leans toward the uh, the serious academic stuff that 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 part that aspect. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, sometimes um, uh. My advisor, Dr. Brown, when I took his class, he always asked this question, like, can a story stand on its own? Do we need to theorize the story? Uh, and why, right? So we had to um, struggle with that idea. If we really believe that a story is so important, and uh, we, uh, that's how we make sense of, uh, you know, our uh, research phenomenon, then why do we need to, why do we, you know, feel compelled to theorize those stories? 
So there was something that we had to kind of grapple with. Um, so our uh, kind of sort of conclusion of that conversation was that if a story is good enough, we don't need any theorizing. The story, oh, really? Real, real, yeah. real good story is like it should be able to stand on its own. And when we finish the readers, when the readers finish the story, they don't feel obliged to read more. It's like after reading the story, it's like they have this kind of aha moment. And then and they have to stop and pause and think, oh my gosh, what did I just read? This is just amazing. So when we, you read a good story, like fiction or literary story, we don't feel that, we, that the story needs to be theorized. So if a if narrative inquirer uh, writes a story and that is good enough, then I guess we don't need to theorize it. But then there is a dilemma that, as you uh, mentioned, you know, uh, as like, like us being in academia, we need to be able to theorize what we just wrote. That's how we make it um, publishable. Um, so that's something that we have to grapple, grapple with. And I'm still, uh, I still don't have a really good solution to it. But when I advise my doctor students, I always say that, you know, you really need to theorize the story. That's how uh, we can make a difference in, in the academia without theorization. Uh, but then that theorization has to uh, has to be drawn upon the literature. Uh, without that theorization, uh, you are not gonna make it. Uh, it's because I think because I think that's why I cannot call myself a writer or a fiction writer. I'm not in the uh, 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 college of liberal. Uh, arts. I'm in the College of Education, and I myself view uh, as a I I view myself as a as an educational researcher. So, although I I feel like I'm borrowing this uh, literary methodology to understand the educational phenomenon that I'm interested in, uh, but it doesn't mean that. I'm a pure writer or a fiction writer. Uh, I I'm an educational researcher. So I think that, but but someday uh, my goal is to write a story that can stand on its own, like real compelling story. So you have just covered so many interesting points, and <laughs> I want to um, let me see. I have I have two questions. Mm-hmm. First question is about this story standing on on its own. Mm-hmm. I want you to give us an example of such a story. I mean, a story that, from your point of view, standing on its own, maybe that one really gave you an aha moment. 
so that our audience, our uh, will know what kind of like standard you are holding there. Um, one of the examples that we used in uh, our class with Dr. Brown was uh, Jonathan Kozor's uh, work, uh, "Children in America." Um, so he does like uh, you know ethnographic study. He doesn't call himself a researcher, right? He's a, he's a journalist, and he goes out these uh, schools that are run down, and uh, and uh, show us what it is like to be in a school that is totally um, unsupported. Um, that is school for especially for people of uh, 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 people of color. So, but then Jonathan Kozo never theorizes his story. But then when we read his work, it's like we, it gives us aha moments about what it's like uh, to be in such a school. Another story that I, I really admire is uh, Pat Conroy's The Water is Wide. Uh, it's a story about his his uh, ex- experience of being a teacher in a in a in an island. Uh, he did a stint in this island of being a teacher for a year, and he documents uh, all kinds of his experiences and his perceptions and uh, and all kinds of stories, anecdotes that happened while he's teaching with working with. Uh, uh, students um, and and people living in that island. Um, that book is like so captivating, and um, I would. But then Pat Conroy is a you know uh, famous writer, and again he's not a researcher. So uh, there is a distinction between a storyteller or a writer. And, and an educational researcher. And sometimes um, maybe we should distinguish the differences, but maybe we don't need to. When we become one, I, that's the kind of direction that I want to go. That, that would be my goal, where I can be the storyteller and an educational researcher uh, two people in one. I think that's what I want to go. So you are really trying to make this merge happen. Like mm-hmm. you are really trying to um to 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 see yourself fit in these two different shoes. Shall I say mm-hmm. that? I mean. Yeah, and then we see the distinction between, uh, say, artistic work and just educational research. The boundary is blurring yeah. in narrative inquiry. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of narrative inquiry because, you know, you write something, uh, academic stuff, and nobody reads it, and what is the point of writing it? So if we can make uh, write something that is readable, that is approachable, that can be read by, you know, wide audience, 
I think we can make a difference, right, with our research. Um, but when nobody reads our work, how can we make a difference? Well, that's very interesting. But I also want to um, play this devil's role, oh, <laughs> just to uh, mention that you know this uh, very strong tradition of. Um, producing objective knowledge in the field of educational research and this very strong emphasis of you know you need to create some scientific work instead of some aesthetic work and Mm -hmm. that reminds me of like uh, the conversation we just had about theorization so -hmm. for example i think um in your book, you've introduced many different theories that uh, uh, qualitative inquirers can use in their work. Like you introduced critical theory, critical race theory, feminist uh, methodology. But I just didn't see you uh, mention, say, post-positivism. Um, or maybe critical realism? Did you... Did you mention that? I, I just wonder how your, what is your take on these different uh, theoretical traditions? I mean, in relation to the narrative inquiry work. Yeah, I think I just briefly talk about how um, um, positivism and post-positivism is still well and alive in academia and how narrative inquiry cannot fit into that, uh, you know, that paradigm. Um, um, but I, my argument is that it's not either or, either positivistic research uh, or, or more post-structural or post-modern research, more critical research. It's not about either or. I think it has to be both. Because either methodology or either either paradigm has its own merits, and it has own usage for whatever uh, you know, depending on what kind of uh, topic uh, you have. So I wouldn't exclude uh, any any paradigm. However, narrative inquiry, when you use narrative inquiry, is you. You cannot be uh, in this paradigm where you think black or white, black and white, or uh, you know this dichotomic uh, way of thinking. It has to embrace some ambiguities, uncertainties. Uh, you know that are really human nature, right? So um, we cannot rely on positivistic ideas. On, on everything, when, especially when we try to understand how people make sense of their lives. So um, uh, positivism or post-positivism is not really main uh, paradigm that narrative inquirers might use, but, but I have to say that, that positivism is, like, uh, is everywhere. We cannot... Um, avoid that and we might place ourselves at disadvantage if we stay away from it but then because especially when you try to uh, write a grant proposal 
you know, like big uh, uh, federal uh, grant agencies like National Science Foundation, they still want quantitative measurement, uh, positivistic ideas. So if you say, well, I'm going to use narrative inquiry to evaluate certain program, they are not going to accept that proposal, right? So, uh, but I think as researchers, we really need to um, find ways to um, embrace differences and and uh, to be able to see where we fit in with our methodology. We cannot violate uh, our uh, philosophical orientations to uh, to meet the needs that that uh, federal agencies require us to do. So there's a difference, I think, that we need to think about. So then what is your philosophical approach in I, doing quality, uh, narrative inquiry? It could be um, any anything actually except for positivistic paradigm. I sometimes mm-hmm. use phenomenology. I mm-hmm. use critical theory. I use, uh, you know, post-structuralism. Like I use rhizomatic thinking. Um, and currently I'm very interested in affect theory. Um, you know, so it really depends on what research project you are working on. It really depends on um, the uh, the issues that you are you are exploring. I think the, uh, the we have to be versatile in uh, using different theories and philosophies. Oh, then you are really working on a wide range of theories. Yeah, because I cannot be just one theory. Because, mm-hmm. you know, depending well, on, you know, issues, social issues that I want to look at, I could sometimes focus on racial issues. I want to focus on gender issues. You know, I want to focus on some power issues. But everything is kind of critical, right? So it really depends on what the focus is. Well, that's very interesting. I Just now you mentioned this um like, for example, uh, if you write for grant application, you probably will um, encounter this expectation from the uh, funding agency about mm-hmm. being evidence-based, for example, or being mm-hmm. uh, objective, or being mm-hmm. value-neutral. So mm-hmm. have you, in your own work, uh, experienced any pushback um, yeah, definitely, because um, um, I was uh, collaborating with uh, faculty in engineering and the faculty in psychology, uh, psychological sciences. Um, so they are all like about measurement. They are all about quantifying the data. They are all about finding evidence. Uh, and here... I am talking about stories, talking about uh, quality and qualitative nature in the project that we were working on. Um, 
then um you know when we actually um the original proposal that we were working on did not have uh a, this faculty member in psychology so we did not have in our proposal we did not have any kind of measurement any uh statistics that we will use to evaluate the project that we were proposing so um our proposal got denied got rejected and okay. one of the one of the uh, reviewers comments was that you know how are you going to measure how are you going to assess you know your findings your results so actually oh, yeah. after that uh, comment we had to invite a faculty member in psychology who is really good at assessment or something like that so yeah that's my story yeah so how do you manage this i mean it sounds like you have a, your own way to uh, to overcome it or to deal with it Mm -hmm. I think people will be interested in knowing that because uh, sometimes people are working um, with this uh, maybe marginalized uh, Mm -hmm. non-mainstream methodologies and Mm -hmm. uh, they are struggling to, you know, uh, to get more resources to navigate their research careers. Hmm. Yeah. Um. I think that uh, you know what we can do is embracing the differences. Uh, I try to practice that uh, in in my um, in my work. I I as I was working with these uh, people in different uh, fields. Uh, what I learned is how to give in instead of insisting how to insist your value. I think that how um, I think we have to have a conversation about what is that we need to do, and depending on what the purpose or objective of our research or our agenda is, we could use different methods you could work in different paradigms um but um i think that's where collaboration um is very valuable when we see that uh this um when we work out this kind of conflict that exists instead of running away from those conflicts i think we really need to learn from each other and and understand and embrace each other's uh, differences. Well, that's oh, that's a very interesting perspective, and I'm pretty sure, like, um, novice researchers, our junior researchers, will learn from your advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and uh, you know, um, I. I want to continue our conversation, like mm-hmm. specifically pointing to one aspect of the book, which I think is very fascinating and interesting, where you talk about fictionalization. Mm-hmm. 
So um, you talk about sometimes when representing uh narrative findings, you can uh researchers can fictionalize their uh stories. So what does that mean? Oh. Um. Some um, I think that that's well. If we uh look at these research processes and writing processes on a continuum, you really want to begin with raw data, and you kind of play with it and try to rep- find ways to represent better represent the data you have, and you know we could work. On like you know data analysis using trying to find emergent themes, some commonalities among the data, but then you might see that there is a really compelling story within the data, and as you try to represent that story, sometimes you feel that that story is an analogy instead of your findings because that story. Has so many. Uh, the story really represents the social issues that 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 go on in the society, and using that story as a symbol or analogy, we could bring all the different uh, audiences to uh, together to help them understand what is that we really need to work on to make a better society, to improve this condition, human condition. So um, then when you reach that point, that story is not just your participant's story. It becomes everybody's story. Then then what is the uh, point of making a like a factual story right so it sometimes it turns into a fictionalized story uh, one example is uh, Frank who is um, who wrote a fictionalization of uh, of her research uh, about dancers uh, she's an anthropologist, and she uh, did her research in uh, in um, bars uh, where mm-hmm. you meet people and dance and drink, and actually strippers, actually. Um, so she really did research on the lives of strippers working mm-hmm. for uh, men. Um, first of all, it was important that she fictionalized her story because she didn't want to reveal any of the names, right? She needed to protect the participants. And secondly, the the, themes that she was uh, seeing over and over was kind of, uh, you know, projected the typical story that we would see in in such uh, such uh, situations, so it was better for her to fictionalize uh, the the her research uh, uh, project that 
took so many years, uh, rather than trying to talk about what the evidence was or not, it was uh, she reached a point where uh, talking about evidence was kind of meaningless. So uh, I think that's the approach that she used. So you will reach a point where you say that maybe fictionalization is better. It's, it's not because you didn't do any research, but because of that rich data that you have, perhaps sometimes fictionalization makes more sense. Yeah, so what you said um, makes me think that sometimes fictions are what should I say, more real than mm-hmm. the real stories, right? Right, right, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. yeah, so that's, I mean, that's that sounds very interesting, but also I feel like this process of creating uh, meaningful stories must be very, um, it's a long process, and the writing is so challenging. Like mm-hmm. if someone, if a novice researcher just starts to learn narrative inquiry, just starts mm-hmm. to craft her own stories, what mm-hmm. advice will you give to 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 her? Read and read and read, and write and write and write. Um, I view uh, my writing process as kind of making a sculpture uh, where I have to craft, I have to make adjustments, I have to work on making it better uh, every day. Uh, there's like there I have, I will have so many drafts uh, to make my work better. And um, I would really have my strength focus on the process of writing, how writing is like a part of inquiry. Um, So we really need to practice uh, how to write better, but then to write better, we need to be inspired through readings that we do. Well, that sounds like it's it's something really need a lot of time and energy and determination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and resilience. Yeah, don't and resilience. Don't give up. Yep. Yeah, and resilience. Yeah, and that's why I feel like I really appreciate that you include a lot of um, small stories in your book about mm-hmm. for example about this student's Brian and uh-huh. how like yeah how he created how, how he um uh designed his qualitative project and how he changed his mind how he eventually created his own stories but then he decides just to let go of the story to uh, he switched to a different trajectory Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, uh, like, do you have um 
a lot of students feel this kind of when students feel this kind of frustration, like how do you encourage them? Or how do you, um, I don't know, maybe just encourage them to continue this process? I don't encourage them. <laughs> oh, I okay. Use, uh, yeah, I mean, it's their choice. A lot of people, uh, you know, some of my students, they choose narrative inquiry because just because they like it, just like what I did. Mm-hmm. And they just think that it would come easy because we are all storytelling animals, so to speak. So they just think that they can write a story, they can tell a story. Um, but then when I look at their work, um, it is far from what we wanted to see uh, as part of uh, a narrative inquiry project. So I have to say that uh, storytelling or narrative inquiry requires more effort it, because it kind of takes one more step. Like you would do if you are doing a traditional uh, quality research, like case study, you may not need to worry about how to write a compelling story but and how to theorize it, theorize the story. So uh, it takes more effort to be a real uh, good narrative inquirer. Um, so if they don't want to do it and, and they don't see the value in narrative and they they want to go to a different route, and I say, okay, sure. But, um, but then at the same time, I see a lot of students who are determined to use narrative inquiry, and I just try to guide them to think uh, of their project from narrative perspective because, it, because they cannot work on narrative project when they have these positivistic ideas about what quality research should be like. Right, so I really have to work on their paradigm, their ways of thinking, and I ask them to embody uh, the narrative way of thinking and writing from the very beginning of their process. Wow, that sounds like you have really put a lot of um, energy and a lot of um, efforts into uh, nurturing this narrative nature of your students. Like thinking, <laughs> yeah, I try. I try because you cannot say that you are using narrative inquiry, but then when you see uh, their writing is written in a very dry way, like so. I kind of uh, ask students to start with their own story, personal story of uh, you know why they are here, right, and how they got interested in their research project then they begin to own their writing and their research project. So they cannot write any narrative, uh, any narrative inquiry project from, by detaching themselves from the writing process. Well, I see. Well, that's so interesting. And thank you so much for taking us to this journey of, you know, our touring as the landscape of narrative inquiry. 
I feel like sure. I I feel like I've learned a lot from you about how you think narratively, write narratively,、mm-hmm. and research narratively today.、Mm-hmm. Thank and, you. <laughs> yeah, sure. And we have taken so much time from you, Zhonghi. Ah,、uh, mm-hmm. before we、uh, wrap up our interview, I just want to ask you what you are working on right now. Like, we will be really happy to have you again. What are you working、yeah. on right now? Well, contact me in a couple of years <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing a book on different theories. Uh, my chapter two of my book is about different philosophical orientations,、uh, but I really had limited space to talk about all kinds of、uh, theories that are available that we could use.、Uh, so、um, now I'm kind of expanding that chapter、uh, into a book. So. Um, and I see、uh, my students、uh, struggling with、um, their theoretical frameworks. So、uh, that's my next project. Actually, the current project that I'm working on,、um, you know, writing a book on different theoretical frameworks. Well, then we we hope you can continue enjoying this. A、playful aesthetic writing experience of about very serious theories. You know what? You really made a good point. That's the struggle that I'm having. You know, how can I write a book on theories that are really heavy, dense top? You know,、uh, topics.、Um, how can I make it、uh, more aesthetically, right?、Uh, so that people can be engaged in reading the book. So that's my challenge. Well, I just feel like you embody this narrative approach. I mean, from <laughs> your challenge and your approach and yeah, how you、I、talk、try. about. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, and we surely、uh, look forward to having you again after you publish. Have after you get this book out about、thank、this. You. Yeah, yeah, and、sure. we we look forward to reading it, and I'm、mm-hmm. pretty sure that will be a very enjoyable read because you are <laughs> really working very hard to make it、uh, aesthetically beautiful, stylish. Oh. Yeah, thank you. I I will try. I will do my best. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us today, Junhi. Thank you, Pengfai. Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you for having me. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye.